every position I got a diamond at. But if I'm not getting a Mushu, you ain't getting a Jeremy. What? I feel like a young no one. Write to us. We're very friendly. We'll Much love. I like root beer now. You did me dirty. Alrighty guys, welcome to Going Deep with Matthew and Jeremy. Today we have a special guest. Not only is he a former Major League Baseball player, not only is he from the Shigong Nation, but he is also your certified hitting guru. And that is Jeff Fry, who is on with us today. Pleasure to have you today, Mr. Fry. Thank you for joining us once again. Yeah, guys. Thanks for having me. For sure. Uh, so we kind of just want to talk about you as the baseball player, you growing up, and how did baseball kind of become a thing? Yeah, I was just kind of, <clears throat> kind of born into it, you know. I, I, yeah. I had a family that was always uh, very much into sports, um, mainly into softball. My mom and my oh. uncles and all that played fast pitch softball, and uh, my grandmother owned a bar that sponsored their softball teams. And so I was always around it as a kid, and uh, just learned to love baseball and go, go to the softball games and play baseball on the side of the field with all my buddies and stuff and just kind of, you know, just, just love, love the game from, from a very early on age. I, I really like that story. I can think that's how a lot of people kind of get involved, just family, right? The family loves the game. And for instance, that's how I got involved in the game. I'm not big time or anything like that, but that's just how I got into baseball is my grandpa yeah. was a huge baseball guy growing up in Brooklyn in the fifties and sixties and having all those great Dodger teams, Yankee teams kind of really, brought me into the baseball world and I gotta say I just fell in love with it anybody who asked me I always say that's my first love and kind of came from family and I know Matt you're kind of the same way right oh no of course yeah growing up you know trying to play in my backyard I have like a little wall where my house is and I used to hit the little tennis balls right over and I used to think that I was uh you know kind of like the Shigong like I think that's gone but you know kind of like 15 feet away from my wall so I thought yeah. it was that that was something special but I mean that is awesome that is awesome um so growing up, as you said, you know, you're getting into baseball. Um, was there any other sports that you were also interested in as well? Because, you know, here, you know, when we talk about for our podcast, we try to, you know, mention other sports. Baseball obviously is huge to us. That's our number one go-to. But we're big, you know, we play basketball on the side, a little bit of soccer. Anything that you did also on the side other than baseball? Oh, yeah, I played all sports. Um, in high school, I played football, basketball, and baseball. Uh, uh-huh. As a young kid, I played, uh, started playing basketball. Probably um, in school in fifth grade, I went to a Catholic school in California and and started playing basketball. Um, fifth grade, played fifth through eighth grade. In ninth grade, um, when I went to high school, I went to a big time basketball school, and oh, I got wow. cut from the basketball team. In ninth grade, first time I'd ever been cut from anything, you know, and um, I still remember the coach told me um, to come back when I grew up. And I was at that time about five foot, less than five foot tall and less than a hundred pounds. So, I mean, I was a little dude and uh, I ended up playing baseball my freshman year uh, at that school, it's Bishop O'Dowd in California. Okay. And then um, my sophomore year, I transferred to another school, Hayward High, where I played 
all three sports um, and then moved to Oklahoma and played all three sports there. Oh, wow. Um, so I believe, Matt, you kind of have a story, right, that goes with the growing up, right, with the baseball or basketball coach? With the basketball coach? Well, I remember. Is it, I was, I re- is it true that uh, you got a hit off of Dennis Eckersley and then you <laughs> wrote to the coach? Yes. He grew up. Yes, it is true. <laughs> uh, my rookie year, 1992, we're in Oakland, and um, that's where Bishop O'Dowd High School is. And I had probably 30 members of my family and friends at the game. And, you know, we're, the A's were awesome back then. And I get a, a hit and run um, first and second in the ninth inning. And hit and run, I get a base hit to the left and knock in the go-ahead run, and we won the game. And so after the game, I found a reporter, <laughs> local, local uh, like the Oakland Chronicle. Yeah. I said, hey, I want you to do me a favor. I said, I want you to tell – Mike Phelps, baseball and basketball coach at Bishop O'Dowd High School, that Jeff Fry is back and he's grown up. <laughs> and it was in the paper the next day. Oh, I love that. I that love is that. that must felt that must have felt so good. That's right. I am back and I grew up. That's awesome. At what point did it enter your mind that like I got to tell him <laughs> Jeff Fry has grown up? You know, it never left my mind. Mm, stuck with you uh, it was really i mean nothing personal against him i really mm. liked him he's my math teacher and he's our baseball coach and i mean i probably wasn't good enough to make the basketball team anyway i was so small i just love playing you know yeah and so i mean you can only keep so many guys so nothing personal against him but i just wanted to let him know that uh i never forgot that and that you know, i really wanted him to be proud of me the fact that i you know I use that as motivation. Now I just got a game-winning hit off the best closer in the major leagues my rookie season. So Amazing. That is, so at what point, though, did you figure out, like, hey, baseball might be an option for me to do this yeah. professionally? I, I never really did, man. My, um, <laughs> my sophomore year in JUCO, my um, coach, Mark Pollard, I was at Carl Albert Junior College. He called me in his office and said, hey, I want to talk to you for a minute. I said, yeah, what's going on? He goes, I think you're a year away. And I said, from what? And he goes, from getting drafted. And I said, by the Army? <laughs> he goes, no, you idiot. By <laughs> and I was like, come on, man, you're crazy. So I never even envisioned that I could be – because those guys were my heroes growing up in the Bay Area. I mean, I was a huge Giants fan. But I also watched the Oakland A's, and these guys were like, you know, these guys were larger than life to me. I could never be as good as those guys. Um, and then at two years, I went to Southeastern, and, and I thought I was done. And uh, mm. took an invitation to a tryout camp from a teammate and did really well and ended up getting drafted out of that tryout camp. That's a story right there. What kind of led you to go to uh, Southeastern uh, Oklahoma State? Well, my junior college coach went to Southeastern, oh. and so we played Southeastern a lot in the fall, uh, and they were a really a powerhouse NAI school, um, but my sophomore year, we, we made the playoffs for the first time, I think, ever in my junior college's history, and we had a great season, and the meeting we had before we went to the JUCO tournament, my coach was telling all my teammates that, hey, all these schools are calling about Fry, he said, you know. Texas, OU, Oklahoma State. He goes, but I don't want him to go there. I want him to go to 
Arizona State or Florida State, all the these schools were the powerhouses at that time. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, I want to go to those schools. And so we go to the JUCO tournament, and I in three games I went seven for eleven. Um, and after the tournament, nobody called me, oh, and wow. I found out that they said that I was too small and I was knock kneed and duck footed, and so I ended up going southeastern, kind of as a fallback, as a you know, kind of reluctantly, and um, you know, it worked out great. I when I got there, Coach Matheny, who was you know legendary coach great man he after about a week he called me in his office and jumped my case and said fry i know you don't want to be here but you're here quit pouting and make the most of it so i was like all right coach so i did it worked out for you at the end of the day right uh yeah. going there um is there any kind of lessons that you learned there in college i said that kind of set you up for life because i know for me i graduated from a small school out here in california um, just some of the messages I've gotten from whether it's coaches in the past, teachers, is there anything there that you got that said, Hey, I can take this everywhere I go. Yeah. I think there's, uh, so much emphasis now on that. You have to go D one, you know, to have a chance. Mm -hmm. That's just not true. Um, there's plenty of guys all over the big leagues that went to junior college or NAI schools or D twos, D threes. It doesn't matter as long as you make the most of your opportunity no matter where you're at as long as you're playing and you, you have a chance and the scouts if you excel the scouts are going to find you no they will i've i've talked to a couple of people and they've always said like if you're talented enough the scouts will find you doesn't matter where you are yeah, they, i believe well however it is there's an ear on the street <laughs> they'll figure out where you are the smallest school <laughs> in the middle of nowhere they're going to find you if you have the talent for it and uh, I think that's just something that I wanted to push to the viewers that you don't need D1 or fancy coaching or this or that. Play your game, be who you are, and the Definitely. success will find you if you're willing to put in the work. Yeah, and I'm a firm believer that you either have it or you don't. Yeah. And, I mean, I think you can – obviously, you can always improve. But some people just have it, you know, and it doesn't yeah. matter what school you're at. There's a lot of guys sitting on the bench and D1s bragging to their friends about how they go to this big time D1 and they're not getting any better. Red shirting or sitting on the bench while these kids in JUCOs all over the country are busting their butt playing every day. So who's going to get better? Exactly. No. Right. That's hogging the innings, right? Yeah. Um, so 1988 kind of rolls around. The, round, the draft happens, MLB draft. Round after round is going. Jeff Fry is still sitting there. What's going through your thought process? Because you were a late round pick. What's going on through that mind of yours on draft day? Well, you have to understand that back in those days, we didn't get to watch the draft. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> 1988. I didn't have a cell phone. Uh, we didn't have a phone in our apartment. So I knew that the draft was supposed to be happening. Uh, um, but it's not like today where... You know, it's on the MLB network or you can find it yeah. on, you know, on uh, Baseball America or whatever on your computer. I mean, I didn't have a computer, you know, so it, I had no idea. I was just hoping that maybe I would get drafted. And, it, you know, I get a knock on the door from Coach Matheny and um, he goes, Fry, you got drafted in the 30th round by the Texas Rangers. I was like, all right, that's awesome. <laughs> but it wasn't like, I, you know, oh, man, I'm not going to get drafted. 
started in the 30th round. I didn't yeah. even know how many rounds there were in the draft. We well, just didn't know those things back then. Throughout the day, did it kind of cross your mind, hey, it might happen today, it might not? Or was it just, if it happens, it happens? I honestly had no thought about it. They mm. told me they would draft me. I assumed that they, you know, they meant they would draft me, but it really wasn't like the whole day was like a buildup like it is now, you know? Yeah. It really wasn't like mm-hmm. that. I'm chilling at my apartment with my roommates, and what are we going to do? Oh, hey, knock on the door. Oh, you got drafted. <laughs> it's just so different than it is today, you know? Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, kind of, can you take us through those minor league years before you come up? Um, you come up in 92, so you spent about, what would it be, about three and a half years in the minors? Well, just over four years total. Okay. Okay, just over four. Kind of give us a little bit of idea what it's like in the minors. I've been able, I've been lucky enough to hear some stories from some uh, other guys, and I just want to get your experience on it. Well, my first year I went to Butte, Montana in the Pioneer League, which is a short season, uh, sixty-game season, and we had um, we had a great team. Um, we made the playoffs, and beginning of the year I was. It was a tough year for me. I had one stretch where I went like over for thirty eight or something in oh, a wow. short season so when you get less than 200 at bats and you got to over 38 mixed in man it's hard to recover oh yeah uh, and at one point i really considered quitting i just wasn't having any fun it's like i'm i'm the backup second baseman the other second baseman was drafted in like the seventh round or something he's getting most of the playing time he's a really good hitter um but i was better defensively mm-hmm. and faster and more athletic and by the end of the season, I was to start in second base. We went to the playoffs. I started every game. Okay. Next year, I go to my first spring training. And I had a great spring training. And I made the low A ball team as a utility infielder with the guy. Uh, the other second baseman was the starter. You know, he was the higher draft pick. And so the first game of the season, he broke his finger, took a ball off the tip of his throwing hand and broke his finger. The first game. So now I took over for him, and he never got he never got the job back. I ended up <clears throat> winning the batting title, um, made the All Star team. Next year I went to the Florida State League, uh, which was at that time was a very difficult hitting league. I mean, it wasn't there was Florida. The air was thick, and you know it just wasn't like an offensive league like the California League or something like that. So I, I did okay. I hit two seventy two that year. Played pretty solid. Next year, double A, just kind of step by step. Double A was a big deal for me. So in double A, after about two months, I was hitting probably 230. And just no power. Just I was like starting to think that this was it. You know, I kind of maxed out. And it's a crazy story that we were in Wichita, Kansas. I was with my, uh, my roommate and I, Rick Rona, who'd been in the big leagues, was a catcher. And we were in the uh, hotel in the atrium area of the hotel playing wiffle ball. And at that time, the biggest stars of the Texas Rangers were Ruben Sierra, Juan Gonzalez, those guys, you know, and they all had these big old giant leg kicks, you know, and I was just kind of a basic, basic stance, just a short Mm -hmm. stride and um, playing wiffle ball. I was imitating those guys with this big leg kick and stuff and just killing the ball. And my roommate goes, why don't you freaking hit like that in the game? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, might as well try it. So the next day I went in to the game, no batting practice because it was a rainy day. 
And I go one for four with a completely new stance, standing upright, almost like Steve Garvey. You guys probably okay. too young to know who that is, with a big leg kick. But the key was I hit a home run foul. And I wasn't even getting close to hitting a ball out of the park with my old stance. You know, I could hit the ball consistently, but just not really strong enough to drive the ball through the infield or through the gaps. So now I had this leg kick and it kind of gave me more leverage and more confidence. And I went from that point in the season to leading our team in nine or 10 offensive categories, um, made the all-star team as a reserve. This is another funny story. I made it as a reserve because another guy got hurt and I had a clinic, I had a clinic set up in Oklahoma in the, you know, during the all-star break where I was going to make 300 bucks, which was huge. You know, I was like, man, I'm, a, I'm making 1100 a month. I can make 300 bucks in one day. I'm going to go get some money. I was broke. So my agent at the time said, man, you got to go to the all-star game. I might buy you another year or two. So I was like, all right, man, I'll go ahead to cancel the clinic and go to the all-star game. Four for five MVP all-star game. And that, now I go to Venezuela for winter oh, wow. ball and it hit 300 in Venezuela voted the most popular player in Venezuela, made the all-star team, put on the 40-man roster. Next year, 89 games in AAA, hit 300. They call me the big leagues. That's – I don't even know how to define how that all went. It just – it kind of seems like it took off. Um, we've seen another kind of player nowadays um, right here in L.A., Justin Turner added the leg kick. What is it kind of about that that kind of helps hitters? Is it a timing mechanism? What is yeah. it? It's a timing mechanism, and when you get it down and you, and you get feel comfortable with it, man, you feel like you can hit anything, any fastball, and that's the key. I mean, these guys, especially now, these guys seem to be all thrown so hard, you know. Yeah. You can't hit a fastball 95-plus. You got no shot. Mm -hmm. So with a leg kick, um, once I got my foot down, I felt so quick that I could hit anybody's fastball. And it, you start getting that confidence. I mean, you, you know, you turn around Randy Johnson's fastball. You're like, damn, I can hit anybody. <laughs> I can hit this guy. You know, it just builds confidence in you. With the leg kick, did you have any trouble with the off-speed stuff at first? Getting it down too early, getting it down too late or anything like that? No, that, I mean, that's kind of the thing with the off-speed, with leg kick. It's like, you know, the strategy to pitch to somebody with a leg kick is to, you know, take a little off, add a little. So you go hard then you go soft because you know i might not be on time with the fastball and now i'm going to cheat a little bit now i'm going to be out front of the off speed so you know i did have a little trouble the off speed pitches um gave me the most trouble but that's kind of true with everybody you yeah. know and so basically i figured as long as i kept my hands back it didn't matter if my body was going forward i could still make solid contact so like you said you come up 92 July 9th, what's going through your head? You finally get the call. What time did you get the call? Did you know before, or was this one of those midnight calls? Hey, guess what? You're coming up. 9 a.m. Ooh. What time was Nine. the game? Uh, games time? at 7 that night. So I was in Louisville, Kentucky, and it was just a typical, you know, we're on the road. Louisville's triple-A team for the Cardinals. I got a roommate, and normally um, in the Meyer Leagues, you don't, you don't get up too early. Okay. We don't, we're getting about $17 a day, I think meal money. So we can't afford to eat three meals a day. So we got to eat two meals a day. So <laughs> we sleep in till lunchtime 
they'll have lunch usually for under 10 bucks and then we go to the field and have the spread after the game that's how we could afford to Mm -hmm. to, uh, to eat and so we didn't get many phone calls at this time nobody had cell phones anything like that we had the hotel phone and a lot of times we would take it off the hook or put on the do not disturb and this morning we didn't do that for some reason oh. and all of a sudden the phone rings at nine o'clock and it's my manager tommy thompson um, i had just been named to the all triple a all-star game it was a huge honor it was all the triple a leagues combined and i made the team me on one side and Brett Boone on the other. And uh, <clears throat> so Tommy Thompson calls my room and I pick up the phone and it's unusual to get a call at 9 a.m. for us. Yeah. You know, something was, something was different. And so I pick up the phone and it's Tommy and he goes, hey, big boy. He was kind of a quirky guy. He goes, you're not going to the AAA All-Star game. I said, I'm not. He goes, no, you're going to another level. Come up to my room. And I was just like in shock. And I just looked at my roommate and didn't say a word to him across the room. And he's just looking at me and he goes, you're going to the big leagues. <laughs> he goes, and you're not coming back either. So now I got to go to Tommy's room. He tells me the details, congratulates me and stuff. And so they called up Brian Bohannon the same day, a pitcher on our team. So now Brian and I have to go to the stadium in Louisville, you know, at 10 in the morning when the stadium's not even open at this time of the day. So we got to get in touch with the, um, the clubhouse manager. He meets us there. We go in, pack up our stuff, take a taxi to the airport, take a flight to Dallas, get here at five o'clock. Okay. Got a car picks us up on the drive to the stadium. The driver told us that they just fired Bobby Valentine as the manager and hired Toby Hara as the new manager. So we get to the field at 530, game 705 walk in there and, you know, say hi to everybody, whatever. You got a locker in there. I go see I'm number 51. That was my number in spring training. And uh, they said, go check out the lineup. So I said, okay, I walk over to the lineup. I'm leading off playing second. And I look at the bottom and Nolan Ryan's pitching for us that night. My first game. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's a <laughs> intro to, to the big leagues right there. Yeah. It's like, I don't have a chance to get nervous. And no, yeah. like, Hey, you want to go out and take batting practice. If you hurry up and get dressed, you can maybe get some swings in. I was like, man, what time is batting practice over? They said like five fifty or something like that. I was like, man, I don't have time. I'll just, you know, I'll take infield. So I just got dressed, took infield right into the game. Um, went two for three with a walk, three runs scored, a triple RBI and player of the game. My first game. I, I don't know how to say it, but you kind of have a thing for the theatrics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, every stage. yeah every stage has been something like monumental that's how much of a confidence boost was that to be able to do that on day one yeah it's huge i mean you know you have a crappy first game and you can sit there and think about it and dwell yeah, on it yeah. and it affects your performance you know going forward but i was fortunate i don't know what it is but for some reason it seemed like when the pressure was on and I had to perform at that time, I did. It's the same thing that happened when I went to the trial camp. Mm -hmm. You know, this was my chance right. and mm -hmm. I did. And I can't really tell you how or why that happened. It just did. That's kind of that it factor, right? That you were speaking on before. You had it. You were able to perform in those moments. Right. Um, that first, that bat. Can you walk us through it? Do you remember all of it? Or Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was facing a guy named Scott Scudder. 
right-handed pitcher for the Indians, and um, I was shaking so bad <laughs> standing there. I was like trembling, and I'd never experienced that before at that, you know, that bad. And fortunately, he walked me on four straight pitches. Of course. Oh, there you go. I didn't have to swing. I was so thankful. <laughs> but the, the cool thing was is so now I'm on first base, and um, the next guy hits a double play ball to shortstop. And Carlos Vierga was the, uh, the second baseman for the Indians. And I took him out and knocked him on the ground. And he didn't turn the double play. And so I went back to the dugout, and they are all giving me high fives and all that. But what I didn't realize is what now they were going to come after me. So <laughs> like an inning later, this uh, big, strong outfielder, Mark Witten, really fast, big, about 6'4", double play ball, the shortstop, throws to me. I go to throw it, and he doesn't slide till about two feet till the base. And I heard him coming at me, too. I heard him running. And so I did like a threw like a one-hop throw to first, but turned the double play. Oh, there you couple, go. A couple innings later, Albert Bell. Oh. You got to know who that is. Okay. Yeah. Another double play ball. He's on first. And I go to turn it, and he's still running. And he <laughs> never slides and runs straight through the base without sliding. So I adjusted my throw and threw right over the top of him. And it, uh, Palmero was playing first. He tried to stay on the base on his tippy toes and nicked off the top of his glove. Oh. And he missed it. And I got a thrown error. Mm. Oh. But he, I mean, because I took out by Erga, they're going to let me know that, hey, rookie, you, you know. Yeah. I, at you, now. you mentioned Albert Bell. And I started thinking of this video I know I've seen of him where he's going to second, double play ball. And I don't remember who the second baseman is, but he's just kind of standing in the middle of the path and Bell just lays him out. It was literally like a tackle that you would see in football. And it's kind of funny. The second baseman kind of just gets up and like, there's nothing he could do about it. It's not one of those where you can go. Oh, it was. I like it was. That. No, that was Fernando Vina. That, there it is. Yeah. yeah. And a funny story to that is uh, my, one of my buddies uh, that was my teammate with the Rangers, he was pitching for Milwaukee at the time. So, Next time Albert Bell came up, my buddy was pitching and he drilled him. Oh. And he called me that night. I was like, "Atta boy, atta boy, Boudreaux." He says, "Man, I got my door barricaded. I'm making sure this fool don't come find me." Because <laughs> Albert was, I mean, he was an intense, dude, man. Great player, great hitter. Oh yeah, he's kind of scary. Yeah, you don't want to mess with him. <laughs> oh no. Um, so you go through. You had. I was. You said three for four, right? That first day. Three. three. Um, I'm sorry, three for three. Three runs, heck of a day. What is that finish of the season? Um, I should have looked it up, but I didn't. Were the Rangers that year in playoff contention? Were you there for the push? It was one of those years. Yeah, I mean, we, never, we were never in the playoffs when I was there. I mean, it was just a, uh, we were probably around 500 or something like that. I finished the season hitting 256, uh, which to me was not good. Gotcha. Um, but – they didn't have, they didn't call up many guys that year. So I ended up winning Rangers rookie of the year. Oh, you know, kind of cool. I did. See that. But 256 to me was a disappointing year, but at least I proved I could play in the big leagues that first year. Oh, definitely. Um, well, you went on to have a heck of a career, um, played with the Rangers. Um, you moved on to Boston, Colorado, Toronto. Um, I, what was your favorite team to play with there? out of those four organizations, which one did you enjoy the most? Boston. 
I've heard a lot. Of, I, I've had a chance to speak with uh, Nomar uh, Garcia Parra, and he said playing in Boston is something that you'll never be able to kind of match. What was it for you? Yeah, I mean, it was just the intensity, um, the excitement, especially when we played the Yankees, you know. When, when, you, when you're in Boston and you're playing the Yankees and you had this it's, – it's almost like uh, the special feeling inside of you. And when you walk out on the field, you just feel the electricity. I've never felt that anywhere else. It's just the excitement. You could just feel the buzz of the crowd. And, you know, there's fights in the stands. These, I mean, these teams hate each other. They have a long history of hating each other, you know. Um, so that was just really cool. And the way I describe it, like playing for the Rangers, the team that drafted me, that was, that was really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I enjoyed playing for all the teams I played for. But for Texas, for example, we'd be losing 10 to nothing. All the time. <laughs> and the Cowboys would score a touchdown and the crowd would go crazy. Football <laughs> You know, in Boston, if we lose on a Wednesday night, half the half the city's going to work pissed off tomorrow. <laughs> you know, because it's life or death. How did the media in Boston kind of affect you? Because I know it could be really tough there, um, compared to possibly Texas and the Rockies and the Blue Jays. Media there is a lot worse. Did that impact you at all? Did it? What is that feeling like on the clubhouse? Yeah, I mean, it's tougher. You know that these guys are going to get on you if you mess up. But I had a good relationship with those guys. I talked to them. Peter Peter Gammons um, was writing then, I think, for the Boston Globe. And um, we became friends. And he used to come in the locker room four or five days a week and uh, come straight to my locker. And him and I would talk for 15 minutes and just BS. And I I love that guy. you know, it just, we just, he called me Frito. That was my nickname. <laughs> Peter Gammons, who was basically, the, you know, the start of all these, you know, this baseball writers on TV and stuff. He was the first. Yeah. And, you know, he called me Frito. If I see him today, he'll call me Frito. So. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, so I have a date for you. Let's see if you recognize the date. I think he will. He's, I don't think we should, that's a bad question we're asking, but go ahead. It is, but <laughs> it's August 17th, 2001. Yeah. Cycle. Already? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I hear for the cycle that day. You did. Uh, do you happen to know out of what, what cycle you were, number-wise on the list? Number two. Two for, oh, yeah. yep, two for the Blue Jays. Uh, Matt was telling me that earlier. And then in baseball history, do you happen to know that one? No, no. You were the 254th cycle ever at that time. Um, You did it with the Blue Jays against the team that drafted you, the Rangers. What goes on through your head in that day, um, being able to hit for a cycle? Can you take us through that whole game and what you were feeling and kind of the at-bats? Yeah, I mean, it was um, was kind of a strange year in Toronto. I was kind of – I got hurt in spring training – and it was never really healthy the whole season. And we weren't winning. And, um, you know, I was kind of like a utility guy, backup guy. And so I, I really didn't even expect to play that day when I went to the field. I knew we were playing <coughs> – excuse me. <coughs> I knew we were playing the Rangers and facing Darren Oliver. Uh, but I didn't know that I would be playing. <coughs> so I get to the field, and I'm playing third base, which is kind of an unnatural position for me. I – I was just playing there out of necessity, and I'm hitting ninth against Darren. And I've done well against Darren in the past. Um, 
And so the first AB, I get kind of a jam shot to right field and the right fielder misplays it on the turf and it bounces over his head and I get a triple. And then next time, you know, I couldn't put, I hurt my right knee in spring training. I had to have surgery, got a staph infection, everything. So I was the whole season, my knee popped every step I took. So it was hard for me to put weight, to keep my weight back. Because all I could think about was the time I took a swing and my knee popped. And it's in your head, you know, it's ingrained mm-hmm. in your head. So I was, I was always out front a little bit. Next at bat, I smoke a ball to right center that Ricky Lede kind of makes a bad route, takes a bad route, and it goes over his head for a double. And now my third at bat, I'm facing Pat Mahomes. You know, I think you know who his son is. Yeah, and uh, Matt told us. Yeah, he hangs a breaking ball, and I had a home run that when I first hit, thought it might go foul, and it barely went over the fence, you know, paint scrapers, like barely over. <laughs> and so now, now I'm like, geez, I got a freaking single away from the cycle. I know I'm going to get to hit again. I can see how the lineup, how the, you know, where we are in the uh, batting order. So, I, and we were winning by eight runs in the eighth inning. And I went up to our hitting coach, Cito Gaston, and I said, Cito, I said, what if I hit one in the freaking corner or in the gap right here? Like, he goes, stop it first and tell him I told you to. I said, are you serious? He goes, yes. I was like, okay, if Cito Gasson, who managed the Blue Jays to two World Series championships and four pennants, if he says it's okay, it's okay with me. Yep. So now I've hit more singles in my career than any other hit. You know, I can't just hit a freaking single up in the middle. I hit one, the best hit ball probably of the night. The right center that goes all the way to the gap. And I'm taking this huge turn around first base, screaming at the first base coach, you know, what do I do? What do I do? And he's screaming back at me, stay here, stay here. So I take a huge turn, come back to first, you know, standing ovation. Kelly Gruber, who hit the first cycle in Blue Jays history, just so happened to be in town. And they called him up to come over to the stadium. He was at an autograph show come over to the stadium just in case. Now he walks on the field, you know, and, and, and hits me in the head or whatever. And if you, you read my lips, I, you can see me saying, of all people to hit for the cycle, it was me. Because they had so many great players over the years in Toronto, you know. And here I am, probably the worst year of my career, injured, and I hit for the cycle. It's kind of funny how that happens. What is it like in the dugout during that? Because, you know, I know from the pitcher standpoint, you kind of leave the pitcher alone when he's in a groove, perfect game, whatever it might be. What is it like in the dugout for the hitter during a cycle? Does everybody realize it or is it just you? No, I don't. I think they did, but I don't think it was. It's not like when somebody has a no hitter or a perfect game. You know, you have all these rules where like, I, I was in the dugout with the Rangers when Kenny Rogers threw a perfect game. And I was more nervous than he was, I think. <laughs> and, um, you know, the rule is you don't go and talk to him. You don't say anything. You don't want to jinx it, you know? So, but I mean, that day in Toronto, it was just a, you know, it wasn't, it was like a meaningless game, you know, toward the end of the year, we weren't making the playoffs and it really wasn't like a, this big build up to like, Hey man, you got this kind of thing. It was just, you know, see what happens. That's still a really fascinating story. It's something to be a part of your, your, your name will always be in baseball history because of that. Um, but kind of transitioning away from your playing career, kind of moving on to you becoming the leader of the Shigan Nation. How did that come about? I've, I've heard you talk about it, but just for the viewers, do you think you can let us know what happened there? 
Yeah, it was just an accident. It was an accident. I, um, I have three, uh, three good friends of mine um, that have all worked in scouting. Two of them still are in scouting. One of them used to be in scouting. And we're on this group texting, and we're always sending each other these silly videos we see on social media of some of these hitting things, right? So I was in the backyard, and I, and I found this little red piece of plastic from a tee. And I told my oldest son, I said, hey, video me doing this thing. See if I can do what I saw in this video. And I showed him the video, right? So I did it one time. And he goes, no, that's not right. I was like, Let's do it again. Let's do it again. So I do it. And at the end, I go, oh, man, the light bulb just went on. Because I'd seen in one of the videos, they talk about the light bulb moment. You know? <laughs> and so I put, it on, I put it on Twitter. And one of the scouts about 30 minutes later goes, dude, you got – 400 views on Twitter. I was like, no way. That's cool. You know, I didn't know. And then, yeah. and then an hour later, he goes, dude, you got 4,000 views. I was like, come on. So I went on there. I hadn't spent any time on social media hardly at all. And, um, you know, I thought it was just funny. I was just making a joke. But then all of a sudden, all these dudes started coming after me. And I mean, the backlash was terrible. These dudes are calling me names, my kid name, threatening me and all this stuff. Um, because apparently the kid I was uh, imitated was one of these guys' sons or something like that. But nobody knew who this kid was. That's the thing when I post these videos. Sometimes people get butthurt because they say, that was my son on the video and blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, nobody knew till you said that. It's true. <laughs> yeah. And it's already on social media. <clears throat> if I retweet it or repost it, it's already out there. You know, and people get upset about it. I've had to take stuff down because moms are – you know, about to cry. Oh, oh it's wow. my son. He's getting all this, all this backlash. Will you please take it down, please? So I, I take him down. I don't, I'm not trying to harm kids in any way. You know, I'm just trying to point out that, you know, there's so many people out there teaching kids stuff that have no business teaching in the first place. And the stuff they're teaching them is, is, is not going to make them better baseball players. Oh, no, I've, I've been watching your videos for a while now and I watch them and you, I get those gut busters. I've had a handful of those and I just like the information you're putting out there. I know when uh, I had messaged you to come on with this, I kind of talked about your Chipper Jones video and mm -hmm. I was watching it. And so just to backtrack a little bit, I had stepped away from baseball after high school, whatever it was. And then I started playing again and I didn't feel comfortable at the play. And I started watching videos and I came across videos that you kind of, I don't want to say mock, but kind of put out there like, hey, this isn't the right stuff. I had seen him like, wow, things really changed from when I was trying to play. Now this is going on. And I started watching more videos and I realized that the information you were putting out is a lot better. And it helped me get be a little bit better in my own little Sunday yeah. that I'm trying to do. So I just want to say thank you for that. And you kind of pointed me in a direction too, where if you actually look out there, there's enough videos and little lessons that you can get from professional hitters such as yourself you saw the chipper jones one that you put it i've been able to watch uh what was the one that i really uh freddie freeman's i was watching and i really studied that one and i really liked what he had going on there and so this is just me kind of saying thank you for that and i probably thank you for a lot of people out there yeah. who either stepped away or are still in it and trying to get better or whatever it might be yeah we were so much better in our sunday league <laughs> just carried us always so well, that's, a, that's the funny thing to me is that um, you see so many former players, okay, that 
played in the big leagues saying this is how they did it. This is how I did it. And not all the same. We all have different things, different keys that work for all of us. Okay. And you never hear any of them talk about swinging up. None of them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so if you watch videos of Tony Gwynn, he didn't talk about swinging up. Chipper Jones, he doesn't talk about swinging up. Barry Bonds, he doesn't talk about swinging up. So these guys, these guys are Hall of Famers or, or should be in the Hall of Fame. These guys are greats of the game. Okay. So what these guys are selling is that don't listen to these guys. Okay. They, they may have thought they did this, um, but they didn't actually do this. It's feel versus real. Okay. Uh, which makes me sick to my stomach when I hear it. And, and it's like, listen to us, even though we, we couldn't even make our junior college team. Uh, we have found the secret to hitting in the last five years that nobody over the first 150 years of baseball found. Right. And, yeah, and the, biggest, the biggest clown to me is the guy in St. Louis, Richard Shank, teacher man, who was a terrible college baseball player, is a pool hall owner, and he watched videos of Barry Bonds for two years. And now he says that one day everybody will hit the way that he teaches. And there's only four or five instructors in the world that are good instructors, and they're all the ones that he trained. Now, who would believe that? How could anybody believe that? Right? Exactly. Yeah, of course. Unfortunately, there's people wasting their money, to me, on, heart, on these, their hard-earned money on these lessons that don't actually improve anything that your child is doing or you're doing, but kind of just pushing you back to me. is bringing your swing back a level rather than pushing you forward. Yeah, and plus, this guy hangs his hat on the fact that he worked with Aaron Judge at some point in Aaron Judge's career. When Aaron Judge supposedly was struggling at one point, um, he was already a first-round draft pick, already in the big leagues, okay? So he, didn't, he wasn't too bad. He got off to a rough start, which a lot of rookies do, and worked with this guy one offseason and had a great year. So now, you know, now he is the guru because he created Aaron Judge is what he's trying to sell, and people buy into it. I mean, it, it's comical to me. No, I agree. Um, kind of talking about Shigon, we wanted to kind of bring it into what today's baseball is like and what you saw over this past season, 60-game sprint, no 162 marathon. What were your kind of – what's your idea of what happened last year? And the second part of that is what did you think of the title? Is it a real title? Is it a fake title? Because there's been a lot of discussion about it. Yeah, I mean, I was just glad they got – somewhat of a season in you know mm-hmm. i think all the players too um a lot of guys made the major league debuts this year that probably wouldn't have in a normal year i mean i mean there's plenty of guys who made debuts that deserved it that were in you know triple a double a the year before but i mean there's guys who were in low a ball last year who were in the big leagues this year out of necessity i think that's an unfortunate part of it because i played with and against a lot of really good players in AAA that never got their chance, that probably deserved it, you know? And, and so I think that was one of the unfortunate things. I mean, I think the season went pretty well. Um, I think, you know, you got to give them the title. They earned it. They were the best team out of everybody else. Just so happens it was abbreviated seasons, not their fault. They outperformed everybody else. Um, but I think we saw a lot of the same trend that's been happening in baseball the last three or four years with you know so many strikeouts and yeah the the three true outcomes walk home run or strikeout and i think it's um 
it's taken away from the excitement, the enjoyment of watching a baseball game when there's just not much action. No, it seems like things have gotten really analytical. Um, I think one of the things that might open people's eyes to it was this past World Series, um, Game 6, right, Matt? Like yeah, Game 6, taking out of uh, Blake Snell when he is absolutely on cruise control. Like, we were surprised, as many should be, but what are your thoughts on that? I think it was terrible. I think, I think it was a good thing in the fact that um, I think it really opened people's eyes to the fact that um, sometimes you just have to go with your gut, man, or, or trust your eyes. Yeah. Okay? It's not always about the, the program you've written out before the game and how we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna manage this game each step of the way through these things. Sometimes things change, and you have to be able to go with it. Now, if this guy um, – you know, one of the things I, I, I brought up to some friends was like, I wonder as a manager when, because we all, even though Cash said that he wasn't told to do it, we kind of all think he did. He was. Yes. How else can you take him out of the game in that situation? Right? Um, so I'm, I'm wondering as a manager, if you know that the script has been written, that he is not to face the lineup for the third time, are you kind of hoping that, at some point he gets hit a little bit. So it looks okay to take him out. I mean, what happens if he's cruising like Snell was through six innings, then you look like an idiot. Yeah. Which exactly what happened. <clears throat> yeah. And then, you know, not to mention the three guys he was getting ready to face. He'd already struck him out six times. Yeah. Six, six at bats. So how can you justify taking this guy out of the game? And now, you know, look what happened. Yeah. Obviously Snell was pissed off about it. And probably told them he didn't want to play there anymore. Why else would you trade that guy? That's, that's a good point. No, that's a great point. I, I, yeah, I think afterwards there was a lot of talk where he's gone. There's no way a competitor would want to stay in an area that analytical. And uh, the real question I was going to lead to it was kind of like analytics in a game. And you kind of hit on it that we opened up. I think Pandora's box has been opened and people are going to change. Here in L.A., uh, Matt and I are do big, big Dodger fans. Having to watch 2017, fall to the Astros. Cheating, not whatever it might be. 2018, you fall to the Red Sox. 2019. 2019, yeah, we just we didn't even make it. It looked very analytical from our standpoint. Mm -hmm. We're not, we know we're not there, but it just looks analytical. Everything's kind of written out. Left lefties only face righties. There's no mixed match, no more gut. This year it kind of seemed like it changed. I don't know. It came from the front office. Dave Roberts himself kind of said, I'm going with my baseball gut, my baseball eyes. And things seem to work better. Um, Matt and I have talked about it. AJ Pollock was hot all year. Playoffs came, started struggling. It was a quick switch. It wasn't, well, he hits lefties. Let's keep putting him in, keep putting him in. Yeah. And last uh, on the fly, man, Who, who's the lefty starter the Dodgers had? Um, like in 18 and 19. I don't think he was there this year. He would cruise for five innings and they take him out of the freaking game every time. Uh, Rich Hill. Yeah. Rich Hill, yes. Taking him out of the game. Um, so and now you got to pitch Canley Jensen for two innings. And then by the end of the playoffs, he's worn out. He's gassed. Yeah. No, right. And everyone gets mad, but that's why. It's exactly. He had nothing left. The dude was throwing <clears throat> mid, mid to upper 90s cutters two years ago. Now he's throwing 88 to 90 mile an hour cutters. He's not the same guy. They they rode him into the ground. 
it, it really seems that way. And I, I agree with you 100% on it too. It looks like it was kind of mismanaging at the time. Do you think in 2017, a cheating scandal like that, where you're knocked around in the world series kind of plays into your confidence level and maybe you just can't recoup that at all though. Yeah. I mean, it's tough when you, when you think you're throwing good pitches and, you know, Clayton Kershaw throws 42 breaking balls and not one swing and miss, you know, and he's, he's the best pitcher this generation, you know, I mean, I'm a, to me, that was, you know, that's one of the biggest black eyes in our game in history. Um, and I don't think they were punished severely enough. Um, and to me, if any title should have an asterisk around it, it should be that one. Yeah, you're, you're not going to get anybody arguing here with Yeah, uh, no worries. Uh, <laughs> what do you think should have been the punishment, though, rather than just immunity nonsense and firing a manager of the GM? Yeah, I don't know. I think Major League Baseball uh, screwed that up from the get-go. First off, just giving everybody blanket immunity um, and then, you know, getting rid of the manager and GM like they're the scapegoats, you know. Obviously, A.J. Hinch messed up by not stopping it. The general manager to this day claims he didn't know it was happening. How that's even possible, I don't know. It it seems like if you ever went out to a baseball game where the general managers and – the owner's sit is pretty close to the dugout. Okay. So if you're at a game and uh, it's not like it's sold out every day in Houston. Okay. And you're at a game and you keep hearing this drum sound from your dugout. Are you not going to at least question? What is that? That's yeah. an unusual sound to hear at a baseball game. Okay. You might hear it once a game when a guy has a terrible day and he goes in there and beats the crap out of a trash can about 30 times with his bat, but you're not going to hear it during at-bats, only when your team's hitting, bang, bang, bang. And then you see the reaction of the hitters when guys are throwing nasty sliders 0-2 and they're taking them like they know it's coming. As a, I, I, I think that if I was playing against them, I would have noticed. There's no way, because I always watch how hitters react to certain pitches, okay? And if I don't know that this guy's got a nasty slider and this guy's set up 1-2, that he's going to be chasing a pitch in the dirt away. And yeah. if he takes it like he knew it was coming, you're going to like, something ain't right. That's not, you know, I mean, he might be a good hitter, but I mean, you can't help but think you have to protect the plate in that situation. And me being a hitter, I know that feeling. And to see these guys, the way they're taking pitches like they knew it was coming and hitting first pitch curveballs 450 feet, which never happens, you know, you'd ha- I think I would have noticed. <laughs> Yeah, um, I love that they've gone through and kind of fixed, not fixed it, but kind of shown the video. The one that really stood out to me was Alex Bregman in Toronto. It was like the, I want to say it was top of the eighth, like two people on, 0-2 count, and it's a slider, and this guy never even gets ready. He's never even in a stance. Yeah. It's bat on the shoulder like he knew exactly what it was. And yeah. I think at that point, somebody should have realized something. Um, there has been reports that baseball kind of knew already and they just kind of turned a blind eye to it and let it go. And it wasn't until Mike Friars came out. Uh, yeah. Just want your opinions on, on Friars and should he be hated or loved for this? That's a tough one, man. You know, it's like he benefited being on that team when they won. Yeah. So it's, 
That's a tough one. For me, you can't say anything. You can't say anything. If you if if you're gonna say something, say something when you're on the team. Exactly. Because um, if you've been around this game long enough, you should know what's right and wrong, and don't just let it slide as long as you're winning, and then leave and and say something. So I mean, it's tough. I I know there's different views, and it's it's hard for me to say if what I would have done in his position. Uh, so I'm not, I don't want to be too critical of the guy, but generally what happens, you know, in the clubhouse stays, man. Fair enough. And I think that's really what the backlash was, is that he kind of broke one of those unwritten rules. Mm-hmm. Like you said, what happens in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse. Um, <clears throat> and I, I'm not even sure, is he still pitching? Has, he's kind of out. Last year. He pitched last year. He did pitch last year? Okay. Just wanted to make sure, because I wasn't sure if eventually that would lead to kind of like a black ball situation where, this, there's a certain line and you cross the line and no team was going to want to take a chance yeah. on it. Yeah. I, I mean, he pitched last year. Um, I think he might've been on Oakland. Yeah. He was in Oakland. Yeah. Um, but it's tough. Like, you know, I remember when, um, when we had a strike and I had, um, you know, they asked players to cross the picket line and I had three or four of my good friends, teammates ask me what they should do that the, you know, the team told them that if they don't cross the picket line and play as replacement players, that they're going to get released. You know, it's a tough spot to be in. And I was pretty secure in my job at the time in the big leagues. And I just told him, I said, man, I'm, I'm glad you have to make this choice and not me. I said, you're going to be my friend no matter what you decide. But in my mind, I don't think you should do it. And none of them did it. None of them did it. And I mean, that's a tough, it's, it's, and it kind of relates to fires situation. You just don't know how you would react until you're in that situation. True. True. That's very true. Um, kind of moving over to some quick fire questions. First answer that kind of comes in your head. We like to do this one because we've gotten some quirky answers before. So I just want to see what happens here. Um, Matt, you have the list in front of you. Did you want to start? I- I'll go ahead and start it. I'll go ahead and start it. All right. So since you obviously your illustrious career, I am, I've always wanted to know <clears throat> out of all the ballparks, as many as you played in, what is your favorite one that you've ever played in? Fenway. Fenway? Mm-hmm. And as a fan, what's your favorite? Oh, and probably the, uh, the Rangers ballpark, mm-hmm. ballpark in Arlington, the old ballpark. The old one. That's the one that just got torn down, correct? Or it's not even torn down yet. He's no, they put in the football stadium. Okay. So yeah. the next one would be, who was your favorite teammate? Oh, man. <laughs> Probably Darren Oliver. There you go. There's a uh, yeah, all righty. Um, if he's on, the last pitcher you'd want to face during your career. Man. Probably Mariano Rivera. That cutter. That cutter. <laughs> Randy Johnson. <laughs> hey, um, if you had to choose somebody where you're licking your chops to get to the plate, who is it? <laughs> Darren Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, he's one of my best friends. He's probably my best friend in the game right now. Um, and he had, we've been friends for a long time. I was his agent. But for some reason, I did well. I was seven for 10 against him in my career. Ooh. That's, that is really good. 
Um, most talented player, most talented player you were around. Oh man, probably either. That's hard, man. You put me on the spot. <laughs> I would probably say Juan Gonzalez. Okay. Go. Alrighty. Um, in today's game, if you had to start your team, one pitcher and one position player, who would you choose? Ooh, one pitcher. Um, man, you guys should send me this. I had to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> one pitcher. I don't know. I, I really like Walker Bueller. And go wrong with him. And one yeah. position player. Well, how much older is is, is Mike Trout than Mookie Betts? A year, two years older. Not, not much. Not, it's not too big of a deal. Right there, yeah. Yeah, I, I have to go Mike Trout. Yeah. Mookie Betts is right there, but Mike Trout's the best. Nice. I agree. If you were in a steel cage fight and had one person on your tag team, who is it going to be? A former teammate? Former teammate or anybody you played with? Oh, man. Probably move on. Ooh, move on. And who wouldn't you want to see across the ring from you? Uh, Albert Bell, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Albert Bell returns. <laughs> um, so here in LA, Kobe is a big part of the city. Kobe is a big part of Matt and I's childhood. Who did you play with that you could say had the Mambo mentality? Hmm. The killer instinct, you mean? Yeah, yeah. killer instinct. Killer but... instinct. Dang, I don't know, man. Uh, Pudge Rodriguez. Pudge. That one's a good one right there. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm a smaller, skinny guy. I'm about your stature <laughs> when when you came out. I'm about five ten, about a buck forty five now. What would you say to a guy like me in high school to kind of get better at the plate? Get stronger. I figured that would be the answer. Would there be <laughs> a mechanical thing that you would have recommended or any, any kind of drill that you could say, hey, you do this, you might have a little more success? No, um, I just don't think there's one drill or one mechanical thing for everyone. That's, and that's the big argument with all these guru guys is, um, you know, it, it's like there's one way to do this. We're all different. You know, we, you know, whatever works for me is probably not going to work for you and vice versa. And so me telling you what worked for me might not make you any better. It's just yeah. kind of, you, know, you have to, through trial and error is how I became a good hitter. I tried this, I did this, I did all these different things until I finally found something that worked for me. And if you don't keep trying and you give up when you're failing, you're never going to find it. So there's not one drill or anything like that, I would say. Fair enough. And one of the last questions I have for you, who is a player that you would be able to compare to your game? In today's game? Today's game or relatively recent? Um, oh, man. Does it have to be like a second base? Well, I mean, Brock Holt is the guy they compare me to. Uh, kind of ability guy. Um, um, a Ben Zobris guy. Uh, ben Zobris was, you know, 
more powerful hitter than I was, but he played all over the field and just kind of whatever the team needed him to do, he would do. So I kind of went through your stuff. Tell me what you think about this comparison. I was going through kind of your stat line and everything like that, and I came up with Dustin Pedroia. Yeah, he more home runs. we yeah. played very similar, but he hit more home runs. Um, he really, I think he really patterned his swing for Fenway Park. And he was, you know, even though he's, I think, probably shorter than me, he, he weighed about 185 pounds and I weighed 160. So he's probably a lot stronger and he exactly. could hit the ball farther than I could. You know, <laughs> my, my good shots to the left were off the wall. His were going over. But, but I, you know, I appreciate that because he was a great player. And from the certified hitting guru for the kids out there in these COVID times, what would you recommend to them doing um, to kind of keep getting better since it's not always, at least here in California, it's not easy to kind of get out. What would you recommend to them just doing in the backyard, maybe something simple? Wiffle ball. <laughs> Wiffle ball. That's how I learned how to hit. You're hitting a ball with a bat this big around that never straight. It's always moving different. And if you can learn how to hit that thing and develop good hand-eye coordination, um, you have a chance. No Let's argument. get started, Jer. We got we can switch uh, time. Um, wiffle ball tonight in about <laughs> minutes. You got it. Um, so the last one before we let you out of here, if you had to choose somebody to come on, maybe join us, who would you want to see on the show? Really? Um, Hmm. Bob File. Matty. You don't know who he is. Matty, write it down. Make sure we get his contact. <laughs> he's a, he was uh, my teammate with Toronto, and he was uh, he's one of the original guys in the Shigan movement. Oh, there you go. And um, for the listeners out there, is there anything, any kind of message that you wanted to give, whether it's about Shigan or anything like that? Um, now, yeah, parents, quit trying to turn your kids into major leaguers and let them be kids and have fun and play the game. Um, you know, the odds of them making it to professional are so huge that, I mean, stacked against them that it's just, it's not realistic. Okay. Let them have fun. Quit being helicopter parents. Okay? <laughs> Taking them to three lessons a week with hitting gurus and let them be kids and play in the backyard and ride their bikes and climb, street, climb trees and, and be kids and have fun. There you go. And guys, just so that you guys know, you guys can find Jeff Fry on Twitter at 03 Jeff Fry. Make sure you guys catch his fun videos and everything he puts out there. It's all great stuff. Don't forget also to check out SheGoneHitting.com. You find a lot of great merchandise, a lot of great videos, a little more about him as well, so you can join the SheGone Nation. I was on there. I was. I saw some of the shirts. I was like, okay. After I talked to him, I got. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, I. The one you're wearing is actually the one I was looking at. The wiffle ball one, and it kind of has a Ken Griffey swing to it. Looks like. <laughs> well, that's a launch angle right there. So, <laughs> you get, make sure you get a. There it is. Launch <laughs> ball too. Right there. Yeah. I, that. Yep. I. I love that one. Um, Jeff. Thanks the for taking. The same thing. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I. I was going through. I saw. I'm like. Yeah, as soon as we're done, I got to make sure I go on there and get some. Everybody who has a hat absolutely loves it. They're cool hats. Yeah, so for those who don't know, it's going to be the trucker style. I'm actually a big fan of those. those are cool. Oh, it is. It's, um, what's the company? It's uh, Richardson. 
Oh, there you go. Dickerson trucker style hat. Yeah. There you go. Um, Mr. Fry, Jeff, thanks for coming Thank on. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. Us. Um, yeah, like we said, we really appreciate it. And uh, hope everything goes well with you and stay safe out there. Thank you. Thanks, I appreciate it too, man. Y'all have a good night. Thanks for having me on. You too. Take care.